And where we left off was we had finished uh, chapter 11, in which the final plague had been threatened to Pharaoh, that great tenth plague of the death of the, first, of the firstborn. And so now we turn to chapter 12. We're going to look this evening at chapter 12, the first 28 verses, and look at the Passover. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. For the Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the Word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Exodus chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out from your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone shall be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, 
Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this service. When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord our God, we ask that you would open our ears, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts, that your word might take deep root in them, that we might hear your word and act upon it, that we might be changed and be made more and more into the image of our Savior. For it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. We've come now to chapter 12 in our journey through the book of Exodus. We have been through and seen much to this point. We've seen the people of Israel go into slavery. We've seen them cry out to the Lord in their suffering We've seen the Lord hear their cries and call Moses and send him to deliver the people of God. We've seen Moses and Aaron go back again and again to Pharaoh to demand that he let God's people go. And we've seen the Lord smite Egypt with now nine plagues. And the last time we were together, we saw a final plague threatened, a plague that seems so much worse than all of the other plagues put together. You recall the scene as Moses is speaking to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is still underneath the ninth plague. And so he's in pitch dark and he still will not relent. He's still proud. He will not bow the knee to God. He still, in his heart, believes what he said from the very outset. Who is the Lord? And why should I listen to him? And so now... The Lord is about to bring about that final plague. And just as he has done in other areas, in other plagues, he is about to separate his people from the people of Egypt. He is about to make a distinction, a difference. But at this time, he's going to do so in a very visible way in the Passover. And one of the things that I want us to see from this chapter, often as we look at a story from the Bible, especially as we look at something like the Passover, our first immediate thought is to relate it to ourselves and to our own lives. And so the Passover becomes about the people of Israel, about us. Perhaps even in your Bibles, as you have a heading for chapter 12, you see the heading is the Passover. But it's interesting that the text doesn't refer to it that way. The text is clear that it calls it The Lord's Passover. 
See, we think of Passover as being the people of God being passed over by the destroyer because of the description. But the text tells us that this is the Lord's Passover, that he is in control, that he is teaching us something through this about himself and his mercy. And so this evening, I'd like us to see briefly three things about the Passover. First, in verses 1 through 13, we see instructions from God. Then, in verses 14 through 20, we see the remembrance of God. And then finally, we see in verses 21 through the end of our passage, we see obedience to God. Instructions from God, remembrance of God, and obedience to God. And I hope I don't have to be too pedantic to point out to you what all of these points have in common. That they're all about God. That's what I want us to see. So let's begin then by looking at instructions from God. What God is doing here at the beginning of this chapter is he is describing a new start for his people. So we, we have to see the scene that is before us. Israel has been enslaved for generations. God is preparing to take them out, but this is about more than freedom. We've been saying that all along. This is about more than deliverance from a dictatorship. This is not a grand story of democracy in action. This is about God gathering together his people and giving them a new start, taking them out of bondage and into his kingdom. And because of that, we've seen over and over again that the Exodus story is the redemptive picture in the Bible of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we're freed from our sin and the bondage to it, when we come to know Jesus as our Savior, then we are given a new start, a new life. There is a life that goes on from that. It's not the end. It's really the beginning. And that's what we see here in Egypt. So the Lord speaks in Egypt. Look with me here at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. Now, don't pass over this too quickly. This is the Lord, and you should see in your Bibles that it is spelled capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is the name of the Lord, the I Am. It's the name that the Lord revealed to Moses at the burning bush when Moses says, who should I say has sent me? God says, tell them I Am sent you. And you may recall that the I Am has the idea that the Lord is completely self-sufficient, that He is completely uncreated, He is before all things, He has created all things, and that He is sufficient in Himself, that He needs nothing. But I want you to notice that the Lord speaks in Egypt. That's significant. Because the Lord is the Lord everywhere. Not just in church, not just in your home, not just in Israel. The Lord is the Lord in the place of His greatest enemies. He does not relinquish His sovereignty. He does not become less. This is not a battle of equals between the Lord and Pharaoh. You know, we saw this last week as Reverend Nate Bonham preached to us at our missions conference, he said that oftentimes we see the battle of the world as the battle between God and Satan as if somehow they're equals. 
I think Pharaoh sees them as being equals or himself as being the superior. He's about to learn who the Lord is, that the Lord is the Lord even in Egypt. And the Lord now begins to, even before Sinai, to lay down the law. This Passover law that was quite lengthy as I read it, of exactly how they are to keep the, the, the Passover, is detailed. And it is something that is to be kept throughout the generations. It will be taught and entered into the greater law of Israel in the Pentateuch. And so this is interesting, I think, for us to see that the law of God is not something that he interjects at Sinai. The law of God is not bad. It is not in opposition to grace. It's not something that's added on and is now done away with. Too many of our brothers and sisters see the law of God that way. When the psalmist says, I love the law of God, the best that they can muster is, well, I'm not so hot about the law of God. Give me grace instead. And so the law of God reflects God's character, who he is. And so it actually precedes Sinai. Another thing that we will see is, is that the, the law for the, the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, occurs not just when the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus 20. It occurs actually in Exodus 16, when God gives the law about how they are to treat the Sabbath. And as I often did with Young people, my kids, as they were growing up, I would ask a simple question. What comes first, 16 or 20? What number comes first, 12 or 20? And if you can answer that question, then you would know that the law of God precedes the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And so now here, this new start comes as God reorients the time of Israel. He restarts the calendar. He says in verse 2, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now, I want you to imagine how groundbreaking that would be for Israel. We've been today, during the course of the day, making a little bit of light and humor about daylight savings time and changing the clock an hour and how difficult that is for us and our children and even pets, not knowing that the time has changed. Imagine if your whole calendar changed. If I just said to you, you know what, the first month of the year is July. From now on and forever. And you have to remember that. You have to remember that the year changes in July. You have to change the year on your checks and when you're dating documents. My guess is, is that it would take some time to get used to. It would not be your normal rhythm. But that's what God wants to do. He wants to break up the rhythm of Israel. He wants to weave this redemption into the fabric of their calendar. Now, think about that. Because we are, I think, by human nature, a forgetful people. I often tell people that if it's not on my calendar, I don't know about it. I will forget it. And if I have an appointment or an important date, I put it on my calendar so I won't forget. I even do that with the most important of dates. If you went and looked at my calendar, you will see the birthdays of my children and my wife on my calendar. And you may say, but Fred, you should just know those by heart. And I say, I don't want to leave it to my mind and my heart. I want to make sure I remember those dates. So that's what God's doing here. He's putting it in the calendar of the life of Israel. Now, I want you to also understand that God is asking Israel to exercise faith.
faith. Do you see what most of this chapter is about? It's about the celebration of the Passover. But it's not just about the celebration of this Passover. God is telling them how they will celebrate the Passover in time to come. Now, we might think, practically speaking, someone might stand up and say, well, Moses, good idea, but last time I looked, we're still in Egypt. We don't have our own place. The Egyptians certainly aren't going to give us these days off that God is saying. How are we supposed to do this? And what God is telling the people of Israel is, you must trust me. You need to orient your life around what I say reality is. Not even about your circumstances. Now, if we think about it, that's a real challenge for us, isn't it? How hard is it for us to orient our lives around God's reality when people around us speak of a different reality? But you see, we are called to trust the Lord and to focus on Him. And this start will be a new start. It will be a fresh start for you, Moses says at the end of verse 2. The past is to be forgotten. It's as we're told by Jeremiah that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. This is a new start that comes from God. God then gives instructions to the people. And so he begins here in verse 3, he says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their fathers. Now, this is interesting that this word here, congregation, means the gathered people of God. It really, in a very real sense, correlates to our word, English word congregation, when we talk about the congregation of Christ's church. But the interesting thing is, this is the first time in the Old Testament that this word is used. It's not used in the book of Genesis. It's not used up till this point. Up until this point, God's people were a family, an extended family, perhaps a group. But now God is making for himself a people, a corporate people. And there is no one who is to be left out. You are to tell not just the congregation, but all the congregation. Everyone is to know, from the greatest to the least, from the youngest to the oldest, everyone is to hear this call to a new start. And we also see here that not only is the congregation important, but we see that families are important. You see, this is a balancing act that we must think about in our modern age. Too often we can exalt the family above the people of God or exalt the people of God above the family. And the truth is, as we see here, that the people of God are critically important and they are made up of families because you are to tell all the congregation and as you speak to all the congregation, you do so by speaking to households. You see how Moses has done this as he writes this? And we also see the importance of leaders in the family. In verse 3, that the father is to be involved in this. Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. So the people of God are to come together by families, but in a unity. They're all to perform the same action on the same day at the same time. So there is a greater unity even beyond the family. God gives instructions concerning the lamb. The lamb is to be prepared. Now, 
there's something interesting in the description here. I don't know if you caught it. God tells the people of Israel to set aside a perfect lamb without blemish on the 10th day of the month. But then the sacrifice is to occur on the 14th day of the month. And so that requires two kinds of preparation. They have to find the lamb, set the lamb aside, and be prepared. But then, for lack of a better phrase, they've got to watch over the lamb for four days. They've got to make sure that the lamb doesn't blemish itself, that the lamb doesn't get hurt, that the lamb doesn't run away, that the lamb doesn't get sick. All the more time to think about the consequences of this action and to think about the nature of the lamb that God requires, a perfect lamb. And the lamb is to be a male. Now, of course, the unblemished nature of the lamb and the male nature of the lamb points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not something that we need to leap to in a conclusion. The Bible leads us right there. Isaiah chapter 53, in describing our Savior, says, He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Paul talks about our Lord as our Passover lamb. We are meant to see this as a picture of what we as Christians experience that Jesus and this lamb are to be pure, without blemish. They're not to be for ordinary use. And the need of the people is met perfectly by the lamb. There's nothing left over. No one goes hungry. The provision is perfect. These are instructions that come from God. And the second thing we see is the remembrance of God. We see this in verses 14 and following. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Now, what is a memorial? It's something that we experience. It's either a physical object or a day of remembrance that points our hearts and our minds to an event, to a happening. And God works throughout the Bible by memorials. You may remember when Israel goes into the promised land that there are the stones set up as they cross the river Jordan. God works through memorials of various feasts even beyond this Passover feast. And so this memorial is there to remind the people of God that the Passover was instituted for their best blessing and benefit. Now, we might fall into the trap of saying, well, why would they need to remember? This is kind of a big deal. They're in Egypt. They're slaves. They're going to be free. How could they possibly forget? But God knows we're a forgetful people. He knows that we forget. He knows we fail to teach our children. We fail to teach our children's children. And then eventually there comes a generation that knows not the Lord and wanders from him. And so God sets up these memorials in our lives so that we can remember him and teach generations to come after us. And so I would encourage you, what are the memorials in your life of what the Lord has done? Do you remember when and where the Lord brought you to himself? Do you remember how the Lord has solidified in your life his truth? 
How do you remember God's work in your life? And do you tell your children and your grandchildren about that? Now, some of you are saying, but pastor, I don't even have kids. I'm not even married yet. Well, that's fine. And if the Lord has worked in you, then remember what he's done. And you have all the more time to remember it and to tell others about it. And this remembrance, this memorial, is a reminder of the faith that they have. Because do you see how the Lord tells them that they are to, to eat the Passover? Now, remember, this is not just now as they're in Egypt. This is to be done perpetually as a memorial. They're to eat with belts on with sandals on their feet and a staff in their hand. And, of course, the idea there is they need to be ready to go at a moment's notice. Well, 50 years from hence, 100 years hence, they won't have to be running from Egypt. But God wants them to remember this event and remember what he's done. So, this is a remembrance of the Lord. God also wants them to remember that they are to worship him. Because this feast is a feast to the Lord. It requires preparation. We see this in verse 11, and we see it again in verse 15. God is telling them exactly how they are to prepare, what they are to do. This is not to be done willy-nilly. There is to be thought given. They are to be focused upon this. And it actually requires a sort of consecration. We see this on verse 16. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. Don't miss the word. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. You are to be set apart. You are to be consecrated to worship the Lord. And the Lord wants them and us to remember the significance of this event. It is a sacramental event in every sense. It is something to be perpetually, in the time of the Old Testament, repeated. And then the only difference is, in our age, it has been increased, it has been broadened, it has been enlarged in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is linked to the Passover. It's just that we celebrate now the fulfillment of the true Passover lamb. And God wants us to remember the significance of this event as being redemptive. How does God spare Israel? He only spares them by sacrifice. All of the congregation at the same time will sacrifice the lamb. They will know from the blood that they have been redeemed. But that there is a judgment that must come. Because in the same time as they were to rehearse this, as the children were to ask, why do they do this? What would have to, of course, come up is that they needed to be spared from the judgment of God. And the question would come up, well, did the judgment of God fall on anyone? Well, yes, son, it fell on the Egyptians. Because they didn't believe. They didn't trust the Lord. They weren't covered by the blood. And so judgment came upon them for their sin. I want you to also notice that this is a one-time event that God does not tell them to repeat the spreading of the blood over and over and over again every day during the ceremony. It is once sufficient. This is a remembrance of God. 
And then the last thing that I would have us see is that there is obedience to God in verses 21 to 28. And the first question that we might ask is, who is to be obedient to God? And I want you to notice where God begins. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Moses starts with the elders. He starts with the leaders. This is yet another opportunity for the scripture to teach us the importance of leaders. It's not that the leaders alone are to do this, but it's that the leaders are to do it. Their obedience is to be swift and it is to be in line with the command because others are watching. They are to set the pace. That's what leaders do. They set the pace in a community. And so, lest you think that, well, okay, we've got a few elders here tonight and our elders will need to set the pace. I'll let them go and I'll watch. No, there's more than that, isn't there? Because it's not just the elders. Because fathers in their homes are to also perform the Passover. Fathers are to be leaders in their homes. And so you men here who are fathers, leaders in your homes, you need to set the pace for your families. You need to set the pace of godliness and faith and humility and repentance. And ladies, you don't get away either. Because if men are over their household, there is a sense in which women are as well, that women are over children. Because for the most part in the home, it is the woman who sets the daily pace for the children because she's home with them, encouraging them, teaching them, helping them. She is a helper to her husband. And so we are to set the pace in our home. And even for young people, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today, then you are a leader among your peers you are to set the pace for others around you. No matter how young you are, are you ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you? Now Israel is not to be set apart from Egypt by the first time by an action. Look at verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. And so it's not the action of Israel that sets Israel apart. It's the action of the Lord. He's the one who passes over them. He's the one that makes the distinction. Now you may say, well, they're spreading the blood on the doorpost. Well, only because God told them to. Only because he said, this is the means of you exercising your faith. It's not as if there's some sort of magic property in the blood. So don't get the idea that, for example, if some, uh, some charitable Israelite took a bowl full of lamb's blood and started spreading it all over the doorposts of the Egyptians that somehow they'd be saved in spite of the fact that they don't believe on the Lord, don't trust the Lord, and don't care about the Lord. No, it's the faith that makes this action important. And the faith comes from God. God is the one telling them what to do. Well, if the people of God are the ones being obedient, what is the obedience that is performed? Well, Moses tells them to to. Spread the blood, as it were, over the lintel and the doorposts. 
And this signifies a complete deliverance. You know the old hymn, there is power in the blood. And we are saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the scriptures tell us over and over again. So the spreading of this blood signifies complete deliverance. But you'll notice that Moses also tells them in verse 22 to take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood. And the hyssop signifies purification, not just deliverance, but purification, the holiness that God brings about. And this obedience is to be complete. You see this at the end of verse 22. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. There's no exceptions given. Obedience is to be complete. And obedience is to be perpetual. Look at verse 24. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And perhaps this is the thing that strikes at us most. Obedience is not only to be complete, not only to be perpetual, but it is to be exact. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Oh, how I wish the church of Jesus Christ across the world in the 21st century could understand and act on Exodus 12, 28. Because far too often the church of Jesus Christ says, well, God, I know you say this in your word, but it's really difficult for me right now. God, you really don't understand how I'm trying to minister to other people in my context. I'm not sure I can obey what your word says. And here we have such a simple and clean and encouraging statement. They did so. You notice how short it is? There's no need for explanation. There's no need for uh, verification. It's just done. And the last question we might ask ourselves about the obedience to the Lord is not just who and not just what, but why. Why obey the Lord? If God has delivered them, why do they need to obey the Lord? Look at verse 25. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. Now, this makes it clear that this obedience is not to obtain deliverance because the deliverance is already obtained. And this is instructive to us to our own obedience. We do not obey the word of God hoping to earn his favor, hoping to earn our salvation. That salvation is already obtained by the blood of Christ by faith alone. But what it means is God's promise has been fulfilled. And because of that, we obey God by means of thanksgiving, of acknowledging his goodness to us. But there's also an evangelistic motive here in obedience. Now, when I speak of evangelism, probably the first thing that comes into your mind is walking down a public street or in a public place and maybe reading from your Bible or telling a stranger about Jesus. But do you know where evangelism begins? It begins at your dinner table and on your couch and in your children's bedrooms. Evangelism begins in the family. And that's why they are to do this. And so when 
people ask when your children, in verse 26, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? So follow the logic here. They obey God, they do what he said, and their, children's, their children ask, why? Well, it's a perfect opportunity to tell the story of the Exodus, the story of redemption, of what God has done. Have you ever wished that if you were, I don't know, sitting at a table in a Chick-fil-A, that the person next to you would say, you know, I've been sitting here for about an hour, and I'm just hoping somebody would tell me about Jesus and about the Bible. Do you know anything about the Bible? Could you tell me anything about Jesus? Now, I have to tell you, that doesn't happen very often. People don't normally give you that kind of opening, right? But here, God arranges it so that opening comes. Your children will say to you, you know, Dad, tell us about the most important redemptive history in mankind ever up till this point. Could you tell us a little bit about it? And then the father could say, well, son, I'm glad you've asked. Let me tell you about our bondage, and let me tell you about our freedom, and let me tell you about the Lord and his goodness. So this obedience brings about opportunities for evangelism to children. And then I think finally, it brings about opportunities for us to worship. Because when we see what God has done, and when we are thankful, and when we know who God is, it causes us to bow our heads and worship. And that's what happens here. So as we think about this story, as we think about the Lord's Passover, not just the Passover, but the Lord's Passover, I want you to remember that what we are to do is we are to fear the Lord, not our circumstances. It's fearing the Lord that makes all the difference here in the Passover. And I want you to also remember what the Lord has done. You see, that's what this Passover is designed for. And even though we're not celebrating the Passover, even though we're not doing that ritual or that rite, this remembrance reminds us to remember, to look back at what the Lord has done in our lives. And then finally... This tells us that we must remind others of what the Lord has done. It's not enough to just remember. We remember so we can tell others. We tell others of the goodness, of the grace of God, and how completely undeserved He passed us by, and how He brought us to Himself by faith, and how He showered His love upon us, and brought us into His family so that we might know freedom and life that's the story God's given you to tell. Do you remember it? Do you remind others of it? You see, just as much as if we had our own Exodus 12 story telling us that we must do these things, so much more we have the story of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should never tire telling others about who Jesus is and what he's done. Amen.